Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 650. These were my thoughts when I woke, tangled in Felurian's arms. I lie quietly among the cushions for a time, her head resting lightly on my chest, her leg thrown loosely over mine. Looking up through the trees at the twilight sky, I realized I could not recognize the stars. They were brighter than those in the mortal sky, their patterns unfamiliar. It was only then I realized my life had taken a step in a new direction. Up until now, I had been playing at being a young Taberlin. I had spun lies around myself, pretending to be a storybook hero. But now, there was no sense pretending. What I'd done was truly worth a story. Every bit as odd and wonderful as any tale of Taberlin himself. I'd followed Florian into the Fae, then bested her with magics. I couldn't explain, let alone control. I felt different now, more solid somehow. Not older, exactly, not wiser. But I knew things that I'd never known before. I knew the Fae were real. I knew their magic was real. Valerian could break a man's mind with a kiss. Her voice could tug me like a puppet by its strings. There were things I could learn here. Strange things. Powerful things. Secret things. Things I might never, ever have a chance to learn again. I gently freed myself from Valerian's sleeping embrace and walked down to the nearby pool. I splashed water on my face and scooped up several handfuls to drink. I looked through the plants that grew at the water's edge. I picked some leaves and chewed them as I considered how I might approach the subject with Valerian. The mint sweetened my breath. When I returned to the pavilion, Valerian was standing there, brushing pale fingers through her long dark hair. I handed her a violet its color dark as her eyes. She smiled at me and ate it. I decided to approach the subject gently, lest I offend her. I was wondering, I said carefully, if you would be willing to teach me. She reached out to touch the side of my face gently. Foolish sweet, she said fondly. Have not I already begun? I felt excitement rise in my chest. Amazed that it could be so simple. Am I ready for my next lesson? I asked. Her smile grew wider, and she looked me up and down, her eyes going half-lidded and mysterious. Are you? I nodded. It is good you are eager, Valerian said. Her fluting voice tingled with amusement. You have some cleverness and natural skill, but there is much to learn. She looked into my eyes, her delicate face gravely serious. When you leave to walk among the mortal, I will not have you shame me. And that's the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I get the feeling that they're not talking about learning the same things. Indeed. <laughs> yes, on the next page, we will be told this is not exactly the subject she was hoping to study but also what else can Florian really teach him uh lots as it turns out 
but perhaps not as much as he would like to know. Yeah, well, he gets that uh, elsewhere, shall we say. This is, I mean, like, she wants to teach her specialty, though, is what's occurring. And he wants to learn about, like, things that are still cool and she knows about, but are not necessarily her specialty. Yeah, and he ends up learning both. Yeah, I guess he's trying to get to work up to asking about the Chandrian, which he does eventually. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like she doesn't know about the things that he does want to ask her, but she does not know about them in the way that he wishes that she does, right? Because that would be far too... Or if she does, she doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't think of them as important in the way that he does. But of course, that's also just a narrative necessity because we can't just have Quoth getting the answers to all his questions halfway through the book. Yeah, that'd be too convenient. Well, it- the eating of the flower is an interesting moment that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Uh, because to me, it's it's a little bit sinister, or at least it shows a, shall we say, cultural uh, gulf between what the flowers mean to one another. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like that that famous letter that Maurice Sendak got. A kid wrote him saying how much he liked his books. Maurice Sendak sent the kid a drawing in the mail, and the kid was so excited that he ate the drawing. The Fae do not probably have a custom of giving people flowers as a token of affection, but plenty of flowers are edible and and nice. So I think it's just like a cultural difference. Like she's like, oh, thanks. A nice snack. Love that for me. Yeah, I mean, even if they did give flowers to each other for an affection reason, you might still eat it. Like you give someone a cake out of affection, they're going to eat it. Yeah, true. It's like getting a nice salad. Speaking of a nice salad, this is maybe where Quoth, because eventually he he we learn that he starts chewing an herb that is a contraceptive, and it is here that he begins chewing herbs. He chews a mint to sweeten his breath, uh, and so perhaps we don't really learn where he picks this up. Maybe it's it's his uh, alchemy actually, or his just his herb lore, but it could be that Valerian teaches him this, although. I really feel like Valerian isn't concerned about pregnancy. I don't think that's something that necessarily happens in the Fae, unless you maybe, unless you want it. Who knows? It's not on the page. So all we can do is theorize. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I can see the argument for that not being a thing that Valerian would care about because she doesn't seem to care about consequences. Like, she doesn't really have a, a, a robust sense of, like, you know, the long-term consequences of things like this. But I can also see a case being made for, like, if this is the goddess of sexual desire then she might also be the goddess of like safe sane and consensual sexual desire uh which would include (laughs) contraception and worth noting also that there that chewable herb uh as like a, a contraceptive measure is perhaps not the same thing but i think it's meant to call to mind the plant that the romans used as an abortifacient that they used so prodigiously that they drove it into extinction Oh, I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. It was so important to them that they put it on their coins. Wow. Because the Romans loved to bone, but they didn't want to be having unwanted kids when they were doing it. Hey, it's important to know what you like and what you don't. That's right. Well, and, and people have always been the same uh, in many respects. Also, I feel like it is it is worth note. I mean, we're not on, it's not we're not on this page yet, though. Because he hasn't actually eaten the thing that's the that's the plant contraceptive yet. So maybe I'll save this note for that page, actually. 
Jordana, you have such restraint. It is truly (laughs) admirable. Just remind me that I have a note on that when we get there, okay? I don't want to forget. (laughs) You can count on us, Jordana. We will not steer you wrong. Lovely. Excellent. Anything else on this page? I do not believe so. Well, we have a letter today from Amrita, the acerbic speaker, who writes on East and West in Fantasy. Dear Pagers, the time that Quoth spends in Ademra is my favorite sequence of the series. I see deep connections between the Lothani and Zen Buddhism, which I'm very interested in. I love how skillfully Rothfuss illustrates the impact of cultural differences. The man-mother's debate is such a fun thought experiment. I will write to you with more detailed thoughts when we get there. For now, I wanted to raise an idea that's been on my mind for some years. Adem culture clearly takes inspiration from some East Asian cultures in the real world. It so happens that that Ademra is in the eastern part of Temerant. It seems to me that many authors of epic fantasies tend to mirror East-West contrasts from the real world in their fantasy worlds. The strongest example I can think of is The Song of Ice and Fire, where Essos is to Westeros very much what Asia-Africa are to Europe-North America. For the most part, and certainly in Rothfuss' work, these parallels are delightful. But I have felt a little uncomfortable with some sequences in The Song of Ice and Fire. Particularly, I think Daenerys' adventures in Astapor and Marine have white savior undertones. I'm curious to know if you've felt similarly while reading the series and or watching the show, and what you think about this idea in general. I hope you all have a wonderful summer and enjoy your break. It's not often that one gets a summer vacation in adult life. Much love, signed Acerbic Speaker. I think you're absolutely right that this is a thing in Western fantasy narratives uh, that it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think anyone is like particularly doing it on purpose. It's just the cultural soup that we all swim in. Uh, We're kind of indoctrinated into this idea of like the West and the East, the West being where we are and the East kind of in contrast is like this mysterious, unknowable, ancient, foreign, exotic place. I think that a lot of more contemporary fantasy writers have tried to challenge that. And I don't think the people who aren't challenging it are like bad for not challenging it. And I, I, because I frankly don't think they're doing it on purpose really. And like go in fantasy fiction, it goes all the way back to, to CS Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, like the Easterlings in Lord of the Rings are a pretty obvious and uh, not, not very flattering kind of pastiche of, you know, the Oriental, as it were. I'm a white guy. What do I know? It's, you know, I I don't think I can speak authoritatively on this. I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong about wanting to write about meeting a, a foreign culture that's so different from yours. And that's exciting and fun. And you get to learn about it. I do think that, especially if you are like a white author from the quote unquote West, uh, a problematic idea to begin with, uh, and that there is such a thing as the West, because like there isn't. Insofar as it exists as like a, a cultural concept, I think you have to be careful to not fall into Orientalist tropes. And I feel like Rothfuss is pretty successful. I also personally feel like George R. R. Martin is successful because I don't think any of the people in Essos feel that much like any real world culture. Uh, and I guess. I, you know, I think anyone's entitled to their their own feelings on that, and I wouldn't try to talk you out of it. I guess I also maybe have trouble with the idea of Danny as a white savior, simply because culturally and uh, and ethnically she is also from Essos originally. The the Valyrian uh, freehold was in Essos, so you know, she's just like going back to where her people came from originally. Yeah, I have a lot to say about Daenerys in particular. 
um, with regard to this this reading. Um, but before I, I launch into my tirade about that, I do want to say that I believe that uh, if you are reinforcing, okay, first off, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with like in your fantasy world having the Western part of the world kind of mirror the Western part of the historical, the real historical world and vice versa with the East sort of mirroring the East. I think that's kind of familiar by now. It's a, it's a well-known trope and I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. I think that where you run into trouble and where I don't think Rothfuss does this, I think Rothfuss navigates this very well is when you other uh, the, the Eastern part of it. And, you know, obviously like Tolkien extremely others, the, the Easterlings um, and the Southrons who are like unknowable savages in his, in his writing. Um, I think that Rothfuss and also George R. R. Martin do a good job of having those cultures be, if they're ever othered, it's only because they're they're unfamiliar. And when we quickly learn about them and they are fully realized, uh, they're never like aliens. Um, and what I will say about Daenerys is that I disagree, Jeremy, that it's not a white savior narrative. I think it's very mindfully a white savior narrative. And I think that it is uh, explicitly critiquing white savior narratives by the simple expedient that Daenerys is terrible at it. Daenerys and Tyrion's stories, in my opinion... Uh, are both characterized by the fact that we are rooting for them largely because we're in their heads and we understand the world the way they understand it. But if you look objectively at their actions, they are both terrible villains. I'm sorry. I think burning a city of slavers to the ground is good. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's part of her arc, Jeremy. Yes, I agree. And any reader who's reading the the story is going to agree and cheer along with burning the slavers to the ground. But the larger arc of Daenerys is that she's learning that that's how you govern. Correct. That is true. And that is the correct way to govern. Oh, boy. That is the correct way to govern a bunch of slavers. But she's also terrible at actually governing once she's burned the city down. Uh, And she leaves nothing but, like, uh, civil war, brutal civil war and butchery behind her. And she never really, like learns anything from it. But the entire time she's patting herself on the back and thinking that she did a good job. I, mean, I think she does learn that she's bad at governing. <laughs> I think she realizes Well, yeah, and she flies fails. away. Well, yeah. The last thing she does is fly away. Which is the correct thing to do. <laughs> like, what, should she stay there and continue to be a bad government? Jeremy's snide comments notwithstanding, I do think that Daenerys' story is engaging with the white savior narrative and it is critiquing it and saying that just because you are a beautiful and whether or not you're from initially, you're like ethnically descended from Essos is is irrespective. The fact is she is a uh, white haired, white skinned person among a bunch of swarthy uh, desert dwellers. Um, the, the the narrative in... in um, Song of Ice and Fire around Daenerys is that yes, she is a white savior and she's terrible at it and white saviors are bad and they should feel bad. I mean, I agree with that. I actually want to get back to something you were saying earlier because I don't think I understand the distinction you're making. In what way do you think that the Adem are not other or alien? Because I think one of the things that's so appealing to them, to me, is that they are so completely different. Like they are they are a well-realized culture that feels completely different from the culture that Quoth comes from. They are exotic in that sense. But they don't stay that way. Uh, I think that if any, you know, they, yeah, we, we like, we, we understand why they are the way they are and we're not expected. And in fact, we're chat, the idea that our way of thinking about the world is the, the normative way is challenged explicitly 
in the way that Quoth interacts with the Adem and the way the Adem talk about themselves. Maybe the Adem are right and we're all wrong. You know, who's to say? The book takes a very clear stance that like just because the Adem are different, it doesn't make them other. It's just that they have their own distinct culture. And I think that's the difference. Okay, thank you. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have no notes because I barely made it through the first like season and a half of Game of Thrones and I've never read the book. <laughs> well, and this is, I think, a critique of the show and that the show, I think, never really understood. It, like a lot of the plots in the show, I think the, the show never really understood what Martin was doing with the various plots and just played them at face value, which I think is why you get so much uh, correct criticism of the show and why Daenerys' heel turn in the show, as I understand that, I haven't watched it, but I gather that she has a heel turn that seems to come out of nowhere because Martin's plot outline requires her to have it, but we don't get to sit with her long enough to understand why her behavior changes so drastically. I think that is a completely cogent criticism of that show's failures in that it, it kind of like Zack Snyder in this sense, like they understand like, oh, this is a cool thing to have happen, but they don't understand the thematic... Uh, or character development or narrative underpinnings of why the plot happens that way. So they fail to understand why it's good and therefore how to adapt it into a thing that is good. Precisely. We are in accordance. Listeners, you can hear more of our correct opinions on tomorrow's page. Uh, the Wind. Win.